and welcome to Radical Research. It tells of how a large black cloud descends into Times Square, straddles out across 42nd Street, turns into wool and sucks in Manhattan Island. Our hero, named Rail, crawls out of the subways of New York and is sucked into the wall to regain consciousness underground. This is the story of Rail. This is Radical Research, episode 56. I'm Jeff Wagner, here with my co-host, Hunter Ginn. Are you ready to inspect the lamb's hindquarters tonight? Indeed, I am. Yeah? I have a feeling that it's going to come out USDA Prime. <laughs> do you have a license to offer such a grading? Or? It's a provisional license. It'll have to do. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> We're going to give you the outlay of this episode's purpose as soon as we return. For now, what you just heard was Lily White Lilith, and with that still in mind, let's check out a piece from 1972. This is Genesis playing a non-album song called The Light. Uh, this was uh, kind of an early epic for them that arose around 1970 or 71. Uh, this is a really, really, really raw recording um, somewhere in France in 72. But this is the early footprints of what became Lily White Lilith, which opens the either the third side or the second half of Genesis's The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Again, a caveat, this is a dreadful sounding recording, but you'll get the idea. We'll give you just like a minute of it. We shall return and get into this thing. Mm -hmm. 
So there you go, a little bit of early evidence of the lamb before it actually was born. The idea of this episode is to look at Genesis's sixth album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It was released November 74. We were originally just going to look at it as a whole, and one should listen to it as a whole, right? I mean, we're not trying to well, say absolutely. That, yeah, we're not trying to say one half is better than the other or that, you know, it should be taken in pieces, obviously. This is a, this is a very daunting double album, though, especially when you first start to get to know it. What was your response when you first got into this, and where were you in your Genesis explorations? Uh, pretty early. I, I got that whole clutch of records from Trespass up to Lamb within probably a month of each other, including the, the live album, um, which is probably one of the best live albums ever made. So, yeah, I guess I got all of them roughly at the same time. Uh, I mean, this... This is daunting. I mean, just looking at it, it's like being at the base of Kilimanjaro, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you, you know that you're in for, and not, I mean, not only is it, is it very long, and it's, you know, I, I got the CD version initially. Um, so not only is it two CDs full of music, it's two CDs full of very challenging music, and it's, you know, the densest, most obtuse genesis up to that point. I guess really ever probably. Yeah, I would because say, after yeah. that they yeah you know after Gabriel left they yeah they um they started sort of paring down and becoming even more accessible. Right. That's a whole other conversation for a whole other episode. Um, I love a lot of that stuff. I know you go you go a certain way with them uh, into that stuff, and I go maybe a little further. But you know this was not the end. It is a certain climax. It is a certain apex. It is a certain pinnacle, I suppose. And it's easy to say that just because this is the final one with Peter Gabriel on vocals, but they gave a lot on this album. And I think this is one of those examples, and we will get into this some more too later, but where tension helped propel creativity. Sure. As you mentioned, this is a double album. And in, in late 74, you know, when progressive rock was a thing, but not really even called prog yet, double albums and concepts weren't really a foreign thing uh, at that time. Although I think this one was proving to be challenging to even listeners of, of this kind of stuff as it was being released. The reason we decided to look at the back half or the hind quarters, as we're saying, of The Lamb is because it's had this weird reputation of being top heavy or faltering near the end and it's taken a lot of criticism it was it got a very mixed reaction when it came out 
and it still gets you know modern reviews from listeners who review now on like Prague archives and we'll bring you some of those reviews where people are saying such things. We're going to, we're going to quote, do a lot of quoting here from some reviews to kind of set this up and show you kind of what the vibe is on the second half of the lamb. Hunter and I, we usually disagree, but in this case, (laughs) in in this case, uh, we're very much on the same page. Uh, You know, we feel that it, only gets more compelling and interesting as it goes on. I mean, the first half is absolutely wonderful. You have in the cage, you have carpet crawlers, you have a lot of great stuff happening, flying the windshield. And some very, very hooky stuff happening too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For, for sure. And I, and I think maybe that's what people are, are hearing. And then they get to that second half, which can be quite a challenge in, in spots. And I think they're then judging. And that, that may just be down to taste, too. But you are listening to a progressive rock band, one of the greatest ever, at their creative height. So what do you expect? People? Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for now, like I said, it got a mixed reaction back then when it came out. I think that's important to remember. But we want to read you some quotes from various sources, and we'll get into this whole thing as we move along. But let's set this up, okay? This is a guy named Sean Train at Prague Archives. Quote, for those who saw the shows at the time or the Musical Box shows recently, Musical Box is a tribute band, they will know that the tracks preceding and following the Lamia were filler for Gabriel to dress up dress into and out of the weird and pustulous costume. For me, the silent sorrow, supernatural anesthetist and waiting rooms could have been added in concert, but not in the studio. For I get fed up of this ambience as they are way too long. Lamia and Slipperman are great, but the last four tracks bother to the point that I generally avoid playing side four altogether. Maybe I will just one day play that side four alone to see if it will go down easier on its own. Had this been a one-disc affair, it would have been another five stars. Okay. Sean Train from Prague Archives. Fair enough, his opinion. Let's move on. Easy Living at Prague Archives says, heavy on vocals and light on the instrumental side. Tony Banks' keyboard work is largely suppressed with only the cage. And if you were reading that, we would put S-I-C, sick, in brackets because the song is called In the Cage. Come on, dude. Um, with only the cage really letting him off the leash. Boy, we, we have a lot to say about that because that's not, that's not exactly. That is entirely a mischaracterization. <laughs> it's not even opinion. It's just wrong. It so, really is, and it is objective. Yeah, it's objectively wrong. Easy living at Prague Archives says that. Now, let's move, let's move on. Let's do a few more Prague Archives reviews. Penguin DF12 at Prague Archives says... A major trouble I have with this album is the fact that the second disc lags in comparison with the first, especially side four and the three instrumentals placed on that disc. It seems like Gabriel ran out of ideas and had to fill it in with something. Hmm. Yes, because there's a complete absence of ideas on side four. <laughs> right, especially and, especially... and it's, yeah, and it's, it's all, all the Gabriel. fault of Gabriel. It's all the right. fault of Gabriel's. <laughs> Okay. Lazy, lazy bastard. Okay, <laughs> Zitro at Prague Archives notes that the second disc has some disappointments, though. And while it isn't much weaker instrumentally, its melodies are not as memorable and interesting as in the first disc. That may get to something we had mentioned, just that the second uh, half does become quite challenging. 
So okay, that 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 might be down to taste, but we're, yeah. we're getting we're getting we're getting the idea of what. And Prog Archives is a fairly well noted prog site, and I think um, you know there are a lot of super hardcore listeners and fans out there on that site reviewing. So this is not you know it it, it, it you know there's some there's some validity to all of this, of course, because this is what these people think. Uh, one more from Prog Archives before we move on to other other places. Um, prog Bear at Archives says. It's round about side three that things begin to unravel with some rather less than inspired throwaway numbers. And he quotes Lily White Lilith in any way. <laughs> An obvious filler piece, the jam piece, The Waiting Room. Now, keep that song title yes. in mind, The Waiting Room. That is, um, if there's any controversial song on, on the record, it's that one. We're going to get to that real soon. NME, New Music Express, is a long-running, I don't think it's going anymore, is it? No. It okay, long-running magazine from the UK. Reviewer Barbara Sharon wrote, at the time, in 74, that The Lamb was a culmination of past elements injected with present abilities and future directions. She's right there. And then she said it has more high points than any previous Genesis album, apart from some, quote, awkward instrumental moments on side three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Awkward. That's interesting. And not to pick on him. We love Ken Golden. He's a friend. He's done numerous things for me. He's turned both of us on to many things. He signed Hunter's Band and released four records by Canvas Solaris. We, we like Ken quite a bit. But as, as opinions are, they, they, will, they will differ from friend to friend. And um, I want to quote Ken Golden because I've talked to him at length about this album a few times. And his, his prog pedigree cannot be questioned. Okay. Hmm. But his opinion should yeah. at least be considered. And, and he loves this album. But he told me he thinks it's a flawed masterpiece. I, I can quote that. And recently he told me it could have used a bit of editing and that's, that it's, uh, quote, a bit front-loaded. So, so even he, you know, amongst enemies, Barbara Sharon, all these people at Prague Archives and numerous others feel that this album has some failings in the back half. But instead of seeing it as a failing, I think what Jeff and I would like to do is look at it through the, through a more contextual lens and, maybe bring to bear some of the tension that was well known to be happening within the band onto our reading of this album. And it, as Jeff said earlier, sometimes tension within a band and disagreement can really benefit a piece of work. And I think that Jeff and I would argue that that's the case here. This is uncharacteristically challenging, provocative, um, maybe even confrontational for Genesis, who are always a very ambitious band, but whose work has always been extremely digestible. And oh, want, hold, on, hold on, can I stop you there for a second? Yep. I may have a slight disagreement. I, I want to point to things like Supper's Ready, things like Can Utility and the Coastliners, or even Get Them Out by Friday. I mean, they're, they're very angular in spots, I think unconventional, even for progressive rock of the early 70s. Yeah, but um, they go down easy to me. Okay, okay. I, I, oh, look, we are we disagreeing? A little, a little bit, because my <laughs> my my experience with early Genesis, and of course everybody you know probably has the same experience as I do, or very similar one where you knew Genesis from the hits. You may have liked some of those. I certainly do uh, like some of those later albums, especially Abacab. 
But when I started getting interested in them and finding out that Peter Gabriel was in the band and, you know, did a lot of theatrical stuff and they had this prog rock history, uh, a very rich one at that, getting Nursery Crime, getting Foxtrot, getting Selling England by the Pound, getting Lamb, all of those took me some time to digest. Like I, I, it, they took me some time and I was getting into, you know, I was well into King Crimson and Vandergraaf Generator by then. There was something about Genesis that it wasn't instant for me. However, once I once I got my head around all these compositions, you know, musical box, we, Fountain of Salmasis, we can keep going. Sure. Salmacus, I don't know how you say that. It was so rewarding, and I became obsessed. Now, you, you're witness to that. You were, question. yeah, like, to me, that's when your prog floodgates opened. For sure. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, to me, the lamb wasn't in, in any way different or more challenging, except for the fact that there were well, more of it, and they did go step even further beyond i guess uh, well to me i mean to me that that challenge is really sort of given voice on that that controversial side that we're going to look at tonight and, and we agree um, there we certainly agree yep. there yeah the tension you mentioned the, the, the tension hey, you i mentioned, like that <laughs> <laughs> isn't that a stuck mojo song title tension you mentioned son <laughs> oh lord um <laughs> Why was the first band outside of the Genesis bubble that we that we name um, Stuck Mojo? How did that happen? You, you tell me. I'm gonna blame it on you because you live in Georgia. I, didn't, I, didn't, I had no, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you definitely did. They're from they're from North Georgia, by the oh, way. Okay. Yeah. Totally yeah. different thing, man. Of course, man. We don't claim that shit. Georgia Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. So, yeah, Peter Gabriel had been seduced by the possibilities of film work. I mean, mostly as a screenplay writer. This guy, William Friedkin, had approached him at some point, or they had, you know, met each other and they became friends. This guy, Friedkin, is the director of The French Connection and The Exorcist, amongst others. I mean, French Connection, one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, oh, yeah, and, well, and The Exorcist, the Exorcist we, is we don't even amazing. Have to, yeah, seriously. Yeah. And this was sort of troubling to the guys in Genesis because up until that point, they had, they had nothing to do with really any outside work. I think it was, uh, you know, maybe very early on, well, definitely very early on, Peter Gabriel played flute on like a Cat Stevens record, but it was just, you know, very innocent stuff. This looked like it could pull him away from Genesis. And I think the way Peter Gabriel was going as an artist, they kind of saw the end coming, which it indeed did. Anyway, that, you know, the, the screenwriting didn't work out at that time for him, but the idea of this character of Rail and all he would experience in this story, which became Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, that started to really uh, happen. And I think people need to remember that previous to this album, lyric writing duties were shared amongst members of the band. I mean, it wasn't all Gabriel, actually. You know, it's kind of like the Sabbath situation where a lot of people think Ozzy wrote the lyrics. For sure, uh, Gabriel wrote way more lyrics than Ozzy did for his band. But, you know, I mean, Phil wrote some and definitely uh, Michael Rutherford and Tony Banks wrote a lot as well. So Peter taking over the lyrics and the concept for Lamb actually caused some consternation in Genesis. He also got sort of distracted or just overworked and he wasn't able to finish lyrics for what had grown into this double album. It sort of like was meant to be a single album, then it grew to a double. Tony Banks and Michael Rutherford penned uh, the words for... Uh, light dies down on Broadway, and I, I suspect a couple others, but that's that's not really known, as far as I know. So the split in music writing 
with Gabriel on the lyrics and the theme kind of pushed the other four together in a way they hadn't been. It started to feel a little bit uh, like there was a, a split in the ranks. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like they just weren't working as a five piece as much as they had in the, in the past. So the other four started doing music and led to this freewheeling creativity. And I think they at first were felt it felt it was kind of daunting, but they've all said that the result led to this kind of abandon, allowed them to do some things maybe they wouldn't have done in the past. There is a quote in some Genesis book that I have where they said, you know, we had the full confidence that we could write an album on our own if Peter left. And of course, they indeed did that with the next two albums. So all of it, just keep in mind all of this, because this is in the air within the band as we move along. We vehemently disagree that uh, there's any weakness on the back half of this album. It takes Genesis music to places previously unforeseen or unheard. We are going to jump to the next song on the uh, third side, we'll call it, The Waiting Room. song is a bane for anyone um mm. the, the way that they move from you know improvised noise and electronics into this you know transcendent ethereal you know hackett and banks moment with 
I mean, really, by this point, one of the most muscular rhythm sections in progressive rock. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, Rutherford's bass on, on this album is just hulking. And I, I, mean, I, I, I not to, uh, yeah, I, I got to say about Rutherford, this, and this is a good chance to say it publicly, I have thought for so long that he is so underrated with what he brought to that instrument uh, in, in this time uh, for music, you know, the early 70s stuff he did. Oh. Really, really great stuff. Talk, and you said muscular. That's kind of he's he's a little bit Chris Squire, uh, different obviously, but I think he's Chris Squire in the sense of taking lines and leading the way sometimes, and just being kind of a little bit dominating, really, and sure. a, little, a little bit scary. Yeah, and his his tone is is thicker um, yeah. than that yeah. rolled off Rickenbacker tone that we associate with Squire, and later on Getty Lee and yeah. Rush. Yeah, uh, but I, I I totally agree. I, I mean, he's compositionally wonderful. Contributed some really really uh, elegant acoustic guitar work to the band. Oh yeah, um, great lyrics. Yeah, just yeah, all around talent. Well, I mean, this is the formidable lineup that they had at sure. this point. These five guys, all massive talents. You know, mm. I mean, you know, Phil Collins is drumming at this point could not be questioned. Uh, I think it would even get better as he went on a few years later. I think that Tony Banks. I mean, lush as fuck, man. T- Tony Lush as fuck Banks. Absolutely. Man. Where you at? <laughs> Where you at, Lush? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and then Steve Hackett, who. You know, we could we could do oh, show, God. shows you know, we, upon I have shows a, on him. I have a feeling that a portion of this weekend may be dedicated to uh, our, I don't know, slavish acquiescence to the greatness of Steve Hackett. Let's do it. Yeah, let's 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 take some time and uh, set aside three hours and listen to nothing but Hackett. I mean, Hackett is um, great because when he came into Genesis, he was already you know up against Banks, Rutherford, Collins, and and Gabriel. Well, I should say he came in with Collins, but anyway, these formidable talents, they were just just cycling high with all this creativity at the time. And um, Hackett was just so interesting as a player and how his approach was. He, 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 he was sound effects. He was, he was like this subtle layer underneath. He was stealth as hell, not always in your face. Of course he did a lot of the tapping that Eddie Van Halen later popularized. I just think Hackett's arsenal was vast. Oh, extremely. And And I mean, yeah, and like Voyage of the Acolyte only bears that out further. His, his uh, first, solo. first solo record, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, you, you're exactly right. He really, he, I mean, if he didn't blossom with Genesis before, he really did there. And I don't know that he did with Genesis because the thing about Hackett and Genesis, uh, you, you're, you're, and this is in no way a criticism of him. And in fact, it's it's a compliment. But your ear really goes to him. And then, but but if you listen for him, or you're listening to the thing as a whole, rather than focusing on any one individual member or part, you kind of realize um, how important he is to that sound. If you took it away, you would it would it would just be so obvious that he's gone. But he's not he's not beating you over the head with anything he does. Right. I, um, have you had that experience with with Genesis in the happening? Yeah, well, you know, and something about Genesis um, versus a lot of other prog bands is how you know restrained each of the players could be, and and often were. I mean, Phil Collins was capable of complete pyrotechnics, yeah. but very often he would lay back. You think about him, like compared to other prog drummers, and how you know 
he's, he's almost introverted sometimes. Oh, sure. Uh, but all, all those guys had a subtlety about their approach, uh, almost like a modesty, um, that was at the service of the composition over the service of the ego. Yeah, even with really ambitious compositions too, right? I mean, oh, it, was, it was always about the whole with them. And I, and I really, you know, that's the thing about Genesis for me is um, the standout musicians that aren't trying to stand out necessarily. Right. <laughs> uh, they, they get their moment. No worries there. The Waiting Room. Yeah, th this, was a, this was a pretty controversial tune uh, when it came out. It still can be. I think you find people that just can't sit through it. I, I guess they just don't have any enjoyment. Uh, of, of more experimental, noisier improv stuff. I mean, it, it, that's all it is. And it's not, I mean, it's a wonderful tune. And the way they kind of cohere there near the end of what we heard is, is exactly, it's wonderful. I mean, it, to me, it's a high point on the album, but it wouldn't be as high of a point if they hadn't sort of brought you there the way they do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know this, if this applies to the waiting room. This is, this is an interesting little factoid. When they were mixing this album, uh, Brian Eno was there and he was working on his Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy album. I highly, highly recommend that album. Gabriel asked him to add some synthesized effects on his vocals. I'm reading this so somewhat from, from Wikipedia, but this is um, documented elsewhere. Two Grand Parade of Lifeless Packaging, which, which is on the first part of the album. And they, they gave him a credit on the album for uh, Enosification. Um, as a repayment, as the legend goes, Eno asked Phil Collins to play drums on a track called Mother Whale Eyeless from the Taking Tiger Mountain album. And I'm glad he did, because that's a standout track on a great album. Regarding the Enosification, legend has it that Tony Banks wasn't really psyched with Eno's involvement, uh, and that Enosification credits were removed from later pressings. That's kind of interesting. I also have always wondered if Eno was involved in the waiting room. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I can, I can hear what he did with Grand Parade, but the fact that he would take any time to do anything with them for that song leads me to believe that maybe there was a lot of other messing around done. I tried to do the research and find out, and I couldn't find anything. And if I've, if I've failed that, I'd like some, a listener to let me know. But there's something interesting banging around on this five-disc set that I bought off of eBay about 15 years ago. It was like these CDRs of demos and rare takes of album tracks and some non-album tracks uh, of Genesis in this era just total nerd stuff. And there's a, there's a track on there of just sound effects from the waiting room that were recorded. I'm thinking this, what we're going to hear next was by Eno. If not, all credit to whoever in Genesis played this, but um, let's just have fun and listen to about a minute of some sound effects from the waiting room, isolated, alone, and this will be very strange listening, I promise. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
we're testing our listeners with this one, man. <laughs> I'm hoping that drugs were involved. <laughs> uh, well, you know, if if not for the players, then for uh, for us two listening right now. On, on yes. my side, on my side, they're not, unfortunately. But I, I wish. Uh, I, yeah. Same. I wish I were. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some wild listening. Now I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Um, you've never heard that before, right? I have not. Yeah. Um, does it remind you of some of the more experimental um, things to come out of the German uh, so-called Krautrock scene? Yeah, um, I was thinking about uh, the Faust tapes, mm. um, which is this highly edited um, but uh, almost impenetrable layering of, of sounds and collages um, that came out the year before 1973. Um, but I, I believe Eno probably already had his ear to the ground in Germany. Um, And I think that, uh, and it certainly um, kind of is, you know, part of the tradition of German experimental music. And I mean, experimental music from America too, and, um, and post-punk that would come along. I think, you know, a group like this heat. Yeah would yeah. you know, would integrate um found sound and and collage and noise into their framework but yeah um i think you've got a you you make a really good point there um it, it is um a sort of german experimental thing and i also think that it gives credence to um our theory that brian Eno may have had a a role a, an uncredited role in that piece that was my next question was, what do you, what do you think now on my theory that uh, waiting room probably has the ghost of Eno in it somewhere too? Yeah, no, I think your, your theory has even more flesh to it now. Didn't Eno uh, pair up with, uh, is it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, cluster. cluster. It was cluster. No, he, they're cl- yeah, but there's a cluster Eno record. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like he was, his, his head was in that stuff. It just has some earmarks of you know, so so that's, it's interesting. I'd like I'd like to know if if it's more than Grand Parade that uh, that Eno was on, and if in fact it might have been Waiting Room. It makes the most sense out of any other song in the album. Sure, we're going to move on to a song called Anyway. This developed out of a song called Frustration, dating back to 1970. So along with Lily White Lilith, um, this is the o- the only other tune that I'm aware of that had that really kind of predated the writing sessions, uh, where they were looking for stuff to borrow. No crime in that. We're going to play them back to back. This is uh, a bit from Anyway. If we can talk about Carpet Crawlers and In the Cage being highlights of this album, I think we can talk about Lily White Lilith or Anyway as well. And, and yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I, I just found the, um, the dismissal of those two songs to be really, really shocking. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I've read it elsewhere, so mm. it happens. So anyway, this is uh well, this is anyway, and we're gonna follow with <laughs> frustration, which is a track from 1970. You'll hear the obvious route. Not everybody's gone. Anyway, they say she comes on a pale horse, but I'm sure I hear a train. Driving myself insane. Damn it all. Cause I've got a hole in heaven. Our heaven put a hole in 
feel the pull on the rope Let me off at the rainbow I could have been exploded in space Different orbits for my bones Not me, just quietly buried in stones Keep the deadline open with my Yeah, man, they recorded a few songs. Um, it's, it's a long story, and they recorded a few songs in 1970 for a painter uh, who I believe was named Michael Jackson, so neither the singer nor the beer critic. <laughs> and uh, Frustration was one of those that came out of that. And, um, yeah, that's, that's obviously, uh, you know, they took a bit of that and uh, fused it onto the rest of what became Anyway. Pretty interesting. I, like the the part that they use for anyway sounds like it came from Genesis's you know near future, and then like they get into this part that is clearly a very trespass era. You know the 1970 album, the second one. You can really sort of hear the fault line there because it does sound like past and present Genesis. I mean the uh, in part um, that we heard frustration has a, a much more lighter touch, almost like a like a minstrel air, very, very 60s bleeding into the 70s, um, whereas the the front half of that song has this sort of, you know, sublime terror and authority about it that, you know, would find 
um, it's 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 full self on the later uh, more I, I guess more confident Genesis records. Sure, I, mean, I, I I think they were right to snip that off and go. We need to bring this to a larger audience because nobody heard those three or four songs. Um, right, you can find them on the nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy five box set. Uh, before that, they were it was you know tape trading kind of cult stuff. Still kind of is. Now talking about the past, there's no more past here. They're not drawn from anything. This is all everything else on the record is just Kareen's headlong into the genesis of seventy four and uh, the, the tour they do for this album in seventy five the real pinnacle and it's hard because i have a lot of favorite genesis records this usually wins out as my top if i had to pick i think i think those kind of choices are just ultimately kind of stupid we don't have to make them but if you had to pick and it's kind of fun to, to think about it i think this is the one i don't know what, what would yours be yeah yeah the same and i actually got into an argument with a, a mutual friend of ours over this um not all that long ago okay um who who, who thinks that the album's uneven um, but it's not a yeah and and this is a guy whose opinion i respect very very much and who has been into genesis as long as i have and and knows them as well as i do yeah um but uh yeah he um he he it, uh, he his pick's quite interesting to me his favorite genesis is actually selling england okay well i mean <laughs> i mean you can but I, the thing is it's like you can't argue against it right i know i know it's 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 that way with quite a few genesis albums so yeah before we get into this this nineteen seventy four future pinnacle genesis that we we're promising, and they really do glide right into it. We get some great, 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 great stuff here. Very, a lot of eclectic stuff. I want to go over a few more quotes yet, just to color in a little bit more where we're at here with this album. This quote comes from a book I have called "Opening the Musical Box" by Alan Hewitt. This is Tony Banks talking. Quote. Lamb was a chance to do all sorts of things like improvisations. During the writing of the album, we brought in all these little bits that we had that we had and worked on them. And for me, that was such fun to do. We just set ourselves an idea and improvised on it. Some of them became more solid pieces than others. We had this sort of Chinese jam, which ended up somewhere in the colony of Slippermen, I think. We had one called Victory at Sea, which became Silent Sorrow and Empty Boats. There was obviously the waiting room, which was called Evil Jam. We just sat there and tried to frighten ourselves. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Regarding a piece that appears in the first half of the album, um, Steve Hackett offers insight into the band's writing mindset. Uh, this comes from the same book, and this adds really to Tony's thoughts. Quote, the same thing happened with the bit on the lamb that we used to call Pharaohs, which became flying a windshield. It has no melody, but is full of portent and has the idea of almost the Ben-Hur rhythm, the guys in the galley. I thought, oh, that's good. So the guitar became the sort of screaming voice over it, and I went for Egyptian phrases as we made the same modulation from E to F sharp that roughly parallels the modulation on Ravel's bolero at the end, end quote. Now, we were talking about Hackett and what he does as a guitarist. I think that's such a great description by the man himself. Well, exactly. I mean, it's a perfect illustration of what makes Hackett Hackett. <laughs> right. You know, that, yeah, that he's thinking about the, the rhythm of Ben-Hur and Ravel. Just, just the way he thinks. I think his mind right. is—it's so interesting. And I have been one of the one of the greatest joys of my life, besides my friendship with you, my friend, is um, <laughs> is is get, having gotten to know Steve Hackett and having had a lot of conversations with him in the last five years. One of the things he told me once that really showed me what kind of mind we're talking about is when he called Prague a series of ambushes, and I was like, "Isn't that perfect?" 
Yeah, it is. I mean, isn't that kind of what Prague is? Like, you, you just, you know, you think you're resting somewhere easily, and then ambush, this switch, or this surprise. And, you know, if you're going to boil it down, and I think it's a very difficult thing to boil down in the first sure. place, but if you're going to, let Steve Hackett describe it for you that way. Yeah. <laughs> let, just, yeah, let Steve Hackett describe it for you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, uh, very impressed with that. One more thing before we go on. As we said, from the beginning, response to Lamb Lies Down on Broadway was mixed. I can only imagine 1974. I was just dreaming about getting into kindergarten at the time. You were, you were a speck of dust on the, on the moat, of, on the eye of time itself. Indeed. I, I, think, I think those were actually my best days. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, back in 74, Kim Poor, uh, a girl who... I can't remember. I don't know when she became Steve Hackett's first wife, but she recalls seeing the band on the U.S. tour for Lamb. They started the tour before the album was even out in the U.S. The band insisted on playing the entire album from the beginning of each concert. And if you're talking about an album like this that nobody's heard, even a progressive rock crowd, some of them are going to have some problems. So Kim Poor says, quote, I was a big fan of the band. Half of the audience loved it and half absolutely hated it. It was a real mixture of booing and applause, which caused quite a stir. That's pretty wild. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine being at a Lamb show and having anybody in the crowd booing, but there you go. I don't know. It just, and maybe you had to have been there, but it just doesn't sound that polarizing to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even, I mean, even, you know, with the experiments, doesn't you know you would think that i mean an audience of genesis at this time would have been very captive and also very very um reverent well that's um, just it they're not they're not waiting to hear like invisible touch or illegal alien you know what i mean i mean no <laughs> no they weren't to pick two songs from the later albums that i really hate i mean i i like a lot of it but but those two you know it, you didn't have that crowd waiting for the hits i guess the, the roll the bones Person. The Roll the Bones Girl. Yeah, the, you and I have talked about Which, the, Roll, I, yeah. the Roll the Bones Girl before. Being at the, Who exists? We saw, we saw Rush and the Vapor Trails tour. I think we've talked about this on some other episode, but for those who missed it, um, there was a girl sitting with a, a husband, I suppose, or a boyfriend, and who was, he was clearly just a Rush fan, just like the rest of us. We went with Ben Simpkins, I remember. Mm. Um, and and she, she was you know, kind of just looking kind of forlorn the whole time. And as soon as Roll the Bones, the song came on, man, she was going nuts. And we were kind of think, like, not, we were not going nuts. <laughs> no, no, no. No, we were going to get some, I think, popcorn and nuts. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure she wrapped the break, too. Yeah, she, she, she did. She did. <laughs> Just like really one of the great crimes against hip-hop in, in all, of, all of its history. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. It, it, anyway. You know. We don't want to say a foul word about them, but we, we have yeah. to hear. Anyway, but it, it, is, it is kind of uh, crazy that uh, the crowd will re react this way. Let's get into some music. Let's go with uh, two in a row here. This is Here Comes the Supernatural Anesthetist, and we will then get into the Lamia.
So with uh, here comes the supernatural anesthetist. I, I feel like we get a little bit of the whimsical kind of jaunty Genesis in there a little bit. Still a bit weird because it's this album. And then the Lamia man, I, that last part, it's just got all that drama and coloration that they're just so good at generating. I mean, that's quintessential Genesis to me. And also, we should note the return of Peter Gabriel's flute. Yeah, we we should we should just kind of harp on that for a bit because we don't talk about flute nearly as much as we used to. Yeah. And I, I like hearing it and I like hearing him bring it back because it kind of, it fell off after gosh, it was never hugely prominent, but no. um, he used it a lot more in the old days, I should say. But in, in, you know, in keeping with our earlier remarks about their approach to their instruments and, you know, their, their commitment to, you know, composition over, individual performance i mean he, he's got such a poetic and, and delicate touch with that instrument yeah um it's not my favorite instrument but i always love hearing it played by gabriel it goes without saying that he was such a, a theatrical showman uh with genesis especially on this album i mean you know uh the previous tours as well really beginning with um, nursery crime kind yep. of coming to an apex on foxtrot and selling england but um it was a whole different realm with um the lamb I was so, I guess, let me say this. I traveled from Virginia to New York City, and I stayed with my, my buddy Zoller. Uh, Marty Rickon was in town at the time, and we all hung out for a few days. But my one of my main reasons for going besides that was to see Musical Box play this album in its entirety. Uh, Musical Box were a band that I had seen at Nearfest once before that. And they were this incredible Genesis tribute band. And... I would never, ever travel that far to see a Genesis tribute band. They happened to be playing at Nearfest with a bunch of other, I, I dare to say, legit bands. But you know what I mean. Uh, original. Bands. Original. Bands. Yeah. And, um, but they were great. They were utterly fantastic. It was, it was like time travel. So I thought, you know, because and Lamb is weirdly unrecorded in terms of audio and video. Like, it, there's very little footage uh, of this tour, which is a real shame. And I, and I knew that then, and I was just get you know, I was really sort of peaking in my, my Genesis obsession again, which you can speak what, to. What year was this? Well, what year did we drive to New Orleans to see? Denver? That was, uh, that was O two. 
Yeah, it was 02, 03. Um, okay. It must have been, I, I suppose, 03 maybe is when I went to see yeah. uh, Zalo and Marty and um, did this musical box thing. It was fantastic. They they did the whole thing. And I got like second row tickets. I just treated myself. Oh, I, went, I went by myself. And I don't think I would ever travel that far to see a tribute band ever again. But that just, um, it was a, kind of the right timing. Again, I was oh, like, yeah. sort of at this peak moment in my Genesis fascination. I knew that this would be the only way to really try to experience Lamb live in the best possible way, mm-hmm. barring a time machine. So, <laughs> so I did it. And it was, it was fantastic. But I, I remember the um, Peter Gabriel character the guy who played him uh was pretty incredible i don't recall it that he played a flute in that part so um okay that's all, that's all i wanted to say <laughs> okay <laughs> that was quite a that's quite a build-up to say uh, i know i know <laughs> well I, I had i did have a couple things in my mind as well they, that, that bulbous sort of like creature that he plays that there are pictures of of course just as weird as it looks i mean it was really unnerving when he came out uh looking <laughs> like bad. that i think that was for the colony of Slippermen, which we're going to sample next and do you remember seeing footage of Gabriel and Genesis back in the day where Gabriel would oh, not, sure. only, not only stand there playing the flute and singing, but he'd have that one bass drum that he was kicking? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I always liked that little touch. And, um, you know, I wish he would have brought that into I was the... I uh, that... Was that on... Wasn't on Prog Rock Britannia, was it? Probably, because sure. there's a famous show from the uh, yeah. England tour that is... Okay, that may be. Pro, pro footage anyway so let's get into the colony of slipper men and that bulbous creature that we love so much we did skip over a tune called silent sorrow and empty boats it's wonderful but you know just in the interest of uh making you delve if this is something new to you or, or if it's not you you know what it is but we're going to do colony of slipper men this is a uh, an eight minute song in three parts the arrival a visit to the doctor d-o-k-t-o-r and raven Two moments. His twisted limbs like rubber stumps. I waved in welcome, say please join in. My grit must be flipping, cause his handshake keeps slipping. My hopes keep on dipping, and his lips keep on smiling all the time.
So that was two moments from The Colony of Slipperman, um, another track on this maligned, curiously so side of <laughs> a Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Yes, I, terrible. Know, I hate this it, shit. It is the worst. It's I like, hate- it's. Yeah, completely bereft of keyboards, obviously. I didn't hear a single <laughs> fucking keyboard the whole right, time right. we were playing that. Where are the damn synths? Yeah, where are the synths? Vocals suck. Just a bunch of aimless noodling. You know, this is just, this is just the communists taking over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm moving to Canada. Yeah, I'm, yeah. hell with this. I don't need this album. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They were a British colony. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, no. I'm moving to Australia. Damn it, wait work. a minute. New Zealand. Wait minute. <laughs> oh, wait, that one. Anyway... Anyway, well, I did want to say something. Um, and, and the recently aforementioned and tremendous documentary, um, BBC documentary, Prog Rock Britannia, um, mm. which I'm sure we've mentioned on the show a number of times, but yeah. it bears mentioning again. And if you haven't seen it, rec- comes highly recommended by the, the gentleman hosting this podcast tonight. Mm. Um, but mm. Arthur Brown, you know, said, obviously, but, but eloquently, that classical music was the the basis of progressive rock because progressive rock needed a form you know that was able to support all these multiple ideas and the the you know in these extended forms and classical music gave a, a a context and a chassis to that but i don't think any band has so accomplished the the intricacies the lattice work that that fugue like Bach feeling, the 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 integration of five musicians the way that Genesis has, and I think you hear it at the beginning of that first snippet that we played. You hear a band where yeah. all these all these pistons are moving in perfect uniformity. I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. I think it's also bears noting that the the thing that makes Genesis great is that they were still rock, uh, they were still. Mm modern they were still electric and um i think i think when you get too close to classical there are certain prog rock bands that i think really if they don't fail they're just less interesting to me there's this um dutch band called exception with a k uh that i just take exception with because um (laughs) sorry sorry they just were it was just too much of a graft of like oh we're electric musicians playing classical type music right. it just does it it's it can get a little hokey there are a couple of bands i listen to that get close to that but but generally i you know i think that this is why genesis was so great because they totally. absolutely are what arthur brown's talking about but it's 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 now it's modern or at least modern for 74 there were moments in in those snippets that sounded current to me you know, I mean, there are moments on this album, rock music hasn't gotten that far beyond. I mean, you think about some futuristic rock bands. Like, when I listen to Mars Volta, that always sounds futuristic to me. There are a number of moments on this album that anticipate that kind of live wire, hyperkinetic modern rock that I would associate with a band like the Mars Volta. Oh, definitely. I think we hear it all over this back half of The Lamb. Do you remember when we saw Mars Volta, uh, the Francis, the Mute Tour, before the show, they were playing Carpet Crawlers? Yes, I remember. Yeah, they played that. They played Hawkwind. Yep. They played, um, was it um, Larry Harlow? Yeah. The, cu- the Cuban pianist. Yeah. Um, what else did they play? And that just wasn't the house sound guy. That was that was. No, Omar's no, no. Play. That was Mars Volta. Yeah, exactly. That was Omar's favorite music on tape or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I remember yeah. like being super inspired by that. Even leaving, I was so exhausted from the show, but like thinking back the next morning, it's like, man, that's the coolest pre-show music mix I think I've ever heard. Oh, that was very cool. Yeah, that that was a neat little touch. But it just it illustrates what you're saying. This was a precursor to that, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. One thing I like about uh, the Colony of Slipperman too is that sick voice that comes in that really wretched thing that Gabriel is doing. <laughs> yeah. Now I, I'm really fascinated with that. And this is not something you and I have talked about too much ever, but I'm fascinated with like when early vocals, you know, either in prog rock or elsewhere, but it usually ends up in prog rock or proto metal of some kind uh, where they get really either brutal or scathing or wretched or ugly. And, and the, the kind of stuff we associate with more, quote-unquote brutal vocals now extreme vocals right. now um, i'm fascinated by that like the earliest ex- exemplars of that thing i think it'd make a great episode sometime to pick out like stuff from the 60s and 70s that anticipated brutal vocals and metal sure well and i mean i guess there's probably precedent for it in you know theater and cinema um but it, it took a long time for i i guess someone to to cross that that borderline in sure. in music you, you can look at it like uh you know whatever the first brutal vocals were in metal i don't know if that means tom Araya or chronos probably chronos um of venom yeah. you know they, they weren't the first they certainly were the first in a lot of ways in, in the metal form and they took it to such an extreme but everything has precedent mm-hmm. so maybe an episode one day we'll see cool so the light dies down on Broadway. This was obviously a mirror image of the title, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, uh, which we get as the very first song of this album. This is kind of the answer to that. Another wonderful moment. Back to 
when you and I were just listening to this, you said more flute. And my first thought was I didn't even really realize it was flute because mm. it's, it's so woven into the fabric of, of the piece. But another thing that I would like to mention here at the end where they dial back all the other instruments and all you're left with is that synthesizer and the flute. I mean, that's that combination. That's the work of a compositional mind. Yeah. That's someone thinking about arrangement and timbre and you know, the, the potential for this relationship between acoustic and electric and just a, you know, another great moment on an all around astounding album. Yeah. And I think compositionally, you know, and I, I can't know for sure, obviously, and this is to take nothing away from the other four guys, but I think banks is largely in charge on that one. It just, yeah. seems, it seems like it just the sort of thing because, um, you know, we hear some some parts of this album that sort of announce, and then there were three, which to me is the Tony Banks album. You know, the oh. the one three albums later, where he's just like I said, lush as fuck. But 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 he's um he's a mastermind, and the weaving that they do is is really well il- illustrated on Light Dies Down because I think there was a moment there when that flute comes in that I'm all my ear is also going to hack it and the interesting sort of counterpoint he's doing and then banks just stealthily coming in and then eventually dominating. And, and it's just, you know, it's just this weaving that Genesis is able to do that makes them just, you know, it's another fascinating facet of, of, of what this band's all about. My love for this band is, I mean, this is a top 10 band for me. I, I can't, I can't say exactly where in the 10 they are, but it's, it's really high. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know it's because of an album like this and you know nursery crime and then there were three and many others where um i just hear more and more the deeper i listen and the deeper i listen the more i'm pulled in let's go out with uh we're getting near the end of the album here we did skip a song called ravine which is uh, a couple minutes of truly ambient music it's uh you know it's banks and nothing but banks and um as you listen if you like like us are still really captivated this far into the album something like ravine i think is a nice little breather in a way uh, to kind of like readjust your head before we get into light dies down riding the scree in the rapids and it so you know i think it's a well-placed moment i'm sure that those uh two minutes of ravine bored some people back then maybe bore some people now but uh, you're you're listening to a double concept prog rock album. You you don't have two minutes for like a little bit of keyboard ambience. Like, <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> you know? Like what what else are you doing? Right? What are you? Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> what bullshit HBO series are you watching? I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, um, this is riding the scree. Now d- you knew what a scree was probably before you got this album, right? Because you're 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 well learned. Your uh, your vocabulary is excellent. Thank you. I did. You knew what a screw um, was. I, I don't think I did when I when I got this album. And I was like 25 when I got into this album. Well, I think you know one of the things that I was attracted, um, one of the reasons I was attracted to Genesis and a, a lot of these other bands is because they had, you know, kind of literary aspirations, and and they were also very elusive to um, literature from, I mean, you know, the full spectrum of English language literature, but also. Greek mythology. Oh yeah, that's I yeah. mean that's a whole other Genesis episode, really. I mean they're yeah they're steeped in that, and these were uh, uh, guys that came from a you know pretty pretty deep education. You know, yeah, well educated boys. Yeah, and I mean you can um, 
I mean, it takes no longer than 30 seconds of an interview with any given one of them to see <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're dealing with, um, with, you know, a rarefied group. It ain't Motley Crue. No. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> to state the obvious, would, you know, sorry. I would say that, yes, yeah, Cinderella is sort of the genesis of that scene, of the Yellow scene. Fair enough, man. Yeah. Um, but I always thought writing the scree sounded just cool as shit. I was like, that's a cool made-up word. I just didn't know. I mean, it's a mass of small loose stones that form or cover a slope on a mountain. Maybe a, maybe a boy from Iowa just doesn't know anything about mountains, I suppose. No, that, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Well, we got bluffs. We got bluffs in Iowa. Don't, <laughs> it, it ain't all flat, baby. All right, let's ride the screen. You know, I'm sure that the use of the word scree is figurative here, but it actually sounds like so it has a very visual sound about it, particularly in Banks synth work. And it does sound like someone sort of at, at battle with nature and, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and an act of um, attempted dominance. And I, and I think the, the, the uh, rail, let's, let's just assume rail is the one riding the scree, um, he must have won out because there's a majesty there that's kind of like triumphant. And He's very triumphant. I don't know if it's simply symbolic or not. I think it might be actually a little more literal than you're saying because Gabriel really took this, you know, concept seriously. And we are not here to unravel the concept because it's weird. And as you heard in the very beginning of the show, his little synopsis of it in the live show before we got into Lily White Lilith, um, it's bizarre, you know, and, but I think he took it very seriously and it is very theatrical and very visual just lyrically alone. And I, and I think that is, um, I, I imagine rail kind of like, falling down kind of a mountainside and, and riding the scree, riding the, the, the pebbles on the way down. 
or falling off a mountain in the Lower East Side and like riding down a mountain of refuse. Sure, because you have yeah, you have the urban uh, stuff in here as well. So it's uh, it's all pretty nuts. Um, you know, I have to say that that turned me off at at for initially, because I was so invested in this idea of Genesis as this like completely escapist band. Oh, and pastoral, um, that, right? I mean, and, yes, and pa- yes, very much so. And like to have this, this really really lush um, and, and and rich two album concept record and the i don't know there was a dissonance between the urban content and the the music that did take some adjustment for me interesting say interesting view i i I like that i think i was a little more open to it because i knew or i was keeping in the back of my head that this band did turn into a a more popular thing and certainly you know the the 80s music wasn't looked at as pastoral at all no Uh, and I feel like they kind of shed that, and maybe this is part of the shedding, you know, mm, is this mm-hmm. stuff. Who knows? Um, we are at the end of the album. We get uh, two songs wrapping it up, one called In the Rapids, which, you know, if he's riding the screen, he's falling down the mountain, here he is in the rapids. He's gonna, yeah, he's going to wind up in some rapids event. And, and the great It, which has uh, some, some of the most fascinating lyrics uh, on the album. <laughs> we are going to go out listening to these Stay with us. There's only one way, that's to ride. Taken down, taken down by the undertow. I'm spiraled down the riverbed. My fire is burning low.
in the rapids clearly sets up it and i think it is a completely appropriate ending uh we end in a celebratory mood we've we've come out of this experience uh we're all the better for it we're all happy we're all partying it's got the feel of jubilation to it it does very much so and if you stuck around you also heard a lot of uh, repeated themes from the first half of the album you know I stuck around as in not this episode but just you were listening to this album and you were getting tired by the end well you know you missed a lot of the recurring themes we get that on light lies down we get that on it you know they were smart they were writing a really well-crafted piece and here, here's the question that we're going to go out on perfect album mm, good question uh you know, it sort of challenges the notion of that perfect album. A perfect album, um, it, 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 at least as I'm realizing in this very moment, for me is always like sort of a manageable piece. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like can't possibly have any uh, any fat. And this is, uh, I don't know. You don't have to have an answer. I mean, maybe, maybe, we I, maybe there, yeah. Well, and maybe there aren't any, I mean, maybe there's no such thing as a perfect album. I mean, I, I, I think we've said before in, in conversations privately and also on this podcast that we do believe in perfect albums. They're rare, but we do, believe but, but, but they're perfect to, to us or to you or to me. Well, no, of course. But I, but I feel like the people that say there's no such thing, I mean, for one lighten up man and yeah. two and more importantly really i feel like there are albums out there where you just couldn't imagine taking anything away to make oh, it sure or adding anything to make it better uh, that's always the litmus test for me and although i can't do that with this album yeah i also hesitate to say it's a perfect one because yeah. it is so lengthy and in 20 years maybe we'll find that bit that we could add or take away I don't know, you know, whereas, whereas other perfect albums like Crimson Glory's Transcendence or Fate's Warnings Awaken the Guardian or Rush's Moving Pictures, like those, I can't imagine anything taken away. Yeah. So, well, I think I'm probably hedging too, because I was nervous about this episode. (laughs) I mean, this was a, this was a daunting one for me. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is up there with Devil Doll. Well, you, 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 you you made it out alive, man. You and right. you, you and Rail, you know, just uh, <laughs> just riding the scree, riding the scree, having some tea. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you've you've done some really good rhyming tonight. Oh, I'm f- fucking, you know, DJ Jazzy Wag. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm the rhyme master. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for indulging us. Thank you, Hunter, for um, getting over your nervousness and um, you know doing these boys some good you were the listener for indulging yourself and for giving this incredible band genesis a little bit more of your time please come check out all our episodes at radicalresearch.org join us on our facebook page we have a lot of fun there of course we post the episodes as they come out uh we post a few other things but the the, uh, something that's taken on a life of its own are the playlists um hunter and i keep our fellow freaks up on what we're listening to in return, they share their playlists, and that's become a regular feature. It's a lot of fun, and it was a small victory when a listener said that this is the only reason they haven't deleted their Facebook account is because of the Radical Research playlist posts. So thank you for that, whoever said that. Indeed. Um, I want to take a moment to thank a few people who donated or bought items from the web store or just got in touch for the first time. 
These include Mike Knowles, Chris Alfano, Alan Colson, and a guy named David, a.k.a. Malvis Cormion. Uh, and speaking of David, this David, a.k.a. Malvis Cormion, he recently recommended we explore Atrocities Early Works, the German band. And I don't know, you know, you and I, Hunter, have talked about probably 50 more episodes. We've got many more to do, and we know what they are. We've, we've discussed so many of, of, you know, possibilities, I should say. When he said that, I thought, I want to do that now. So we're going to do that. And I talked, I talked to you about it earlier today, and you were mm. absolutely down for it. So we're going to discuss hallucinations and longing for death. It has a German name, but I'll skip that for now. Are you, are you psyched about that? Of course I'm psyched about that. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't even believe that it didn't you know, make our, our top 50 or 60. You yeah, know, that, yeah. that initial run. I mean, yeah. we both, we've both spent a lot of time with those two records. I mean, yeah. you know, separately and also collectively. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it, I look forward to delving into those. And it'll be exclusively those. We're certainly not going to get into Bloot. Good God. Uh, mm. Maybe we should. Um, or anything else. It's, it's no, about, no, we should Hallucinations and longing for death. So that was a suggestion by a listener that is going to see fruition soon. And episode 58, we usually don't announce two episodes at the same time, but we're going to do that. This wasn't exactly a suggestion, but in the playlist thing that I mentioned earlier, listener Rob No N-O-E, just kind of posted an idea about bands that had explicit, obvious nods to Rush. And he gave three examples. And I thought, and his examples were so spot on. I thought, oh my God, that's a whole episode, you know. And I offered to pay him twenty-one dollars and twelve cents uh, of <laughs> radical research funds, but he um, he said, "Go for it." He said, "Please, absolutely, run with that." So we're going to use his ideas. Uh, Hunter and I have a few of our own, but we're going to make this uh, a more of a listener participation episode. And I'd like to just get suggestions from listeners on uh, snippets that they think whether it's a metal band, a progressive rock band, or otherwise, that are explicitly taken from the Rush textbook. So please email us at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com with your ideas. We're not going to reveal what those songs and artists are until the episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Rob, no, for that amazing idea. I think that'll be a lot of fun, because there are some that are so obvious, <laughs> right? Yes, uh, that it, it'll just be fun to dig into. It'll be a celebration of Rush and, and all these great bands who took, you know, some some influence from the band. No tiles. Yeah, I'm af- I'm afraid we're probably gonna get some tiles responses. But who, you know, look, if if it, if it fits the bill, we might do it. So you know, you're might have to. Um... That's that's Hunter bathroom break time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think you and I dislike Tiles the most for that Presence of Mind album cover in Pun. Oh, God. Was that not the worst? It's, it's close to the worst. Yeah. Look it up, people. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to want to join us for that. You're going to want to join us for the atrocity one. Keep Rock Weird. See you next time.